This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. So, Steve, welcome to 2019. Good to be with you, Adam. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So we start the new year off uh, with the government still shut down, but we have uh, there's a new sheriff in town. Her name is Nancy Pelosi. As I said, the government starts off 2019 shut down. Let's start with Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, I think, kind of slinked out of town, Steve, and didn't uh, didn't really bear any responsibility for the mess he left in his wake. Talk about that for a minute. His tenure as speaker in historical terms, practical terms and political terms. I think that you have to look at Paul Ryan as one of three from Wisconsin, this triumvirate from Wisconsin that had ascended to the heights of national political power. Scott Walker, the governor, Wright's previous the chief of staff, and of course, the one among them that was the constitutional officer, Paul Ryan. And so Paul Ryan was somebody who was heralded as a rising star in the Republican Party, a future speaker of the House from many years ago somebody who was described as a policy wonk, earnest, committed, principled. And what we saw is perhaps one of the weakest and worst speakerships in modern American history. You saw a Speaker of the House completely abdicate his Article I constitutional responsibilities with regard to oversighting the administration. You saw an absolutely fiscally reckless tax package passed that will usher in an era of trillion-dollar deficits as far as the eye can see, putting the country on a trajectory towards $30 trillion in debt. We saw the sugar high of this tax cut, this corporate tax cut expire, the volatility in the stock markets. Nobody was hired. In fact, uh, what we saw were stock buybacks. This was a tax cut for the hedge funds. And certainly, had no impact on the economy or on middle America. But the debasement of our institutions and his silent complicity in it, his lack of courage when it was called for, is what will define his legacy as along with uh, the unbelievable fiscal indiscipline and spending profligacy from somebody that always claim themselves to be a friend of the taxpayer. And then you have Scott Walker, who, when you think about the loss in America, it's that when we go through this process of elections and somebody wins and somebody loses, and I've been on both sides, I've been in the room where concession calls have been received, and I've been in the room where concession calls have been made, both at the highest level. And this idea that When you lose an election, you go into special session to strip the constitutional powers away from your predecessor to neuter him, to neuter the will of the people. This is fundamentally illiberal. This is an assault on the concepts of American democracy and republicanism. And so you see in Scott Walker, somebody who was heralded as a rising star demonstrating on his way out the office that he's completely unfit to ever serve in any government office literally ever again. And of course, Reince Priebus, 
the Washington careerist who becomes the chief of staff to the president and presides over the first chapter of debasements to the to the office. And not until ultimately uh, with Jim Mattis's resignation, do we ever see anyone in this administration putting principle first, putting the country first. And so Paul Ryan, I think, is at the tip of a pyramid of a lot of people who've sold out, sold the country down the river and have played exceedingly important roles in enabling Trump's debasement of our culture, of our institutions, and his recklessness with the uh, wheels of government, so to speak. And Steve, we have, uh, by contrast, there are 54 people, 53 men and one woman who have served as Speaker of the House of Representatives. No speaker has reclaimed the speakership after more than a four-year absence. For Nancy Pelosi, it's eight years. Um, she is somebody who is incredibly well-versed in the parliamentary procedure and the political operation of those 12 chairman of the standing committees of the Congress. Contrast a little bit about somebody who it's always seemed that Paul Ryan couldn't control even a small part of his own caucus with the new leader and the new sheriff that Donald Trump is going to have to deal with. Well, if you go back to the meeting that took place between Schumer, Pelosi, Pence when he was doing his weekend at Bernie's routine and, and Trump. My observation from the meeting was that there was just one serious person in there, and that was Nancy Pelosi. It was like, oh, I have to go out for two hours. Which, which of these people would I leave my kid with? You know, that, type of, that type of normal. Yep. She's a shrewd person. Uh, she's a formidable political leader. She's a historic figure. Uh, she'll certainly have her hands filled. If you look at, on the Republican side, the Freedom Caucus, and as a general proposition, I think have vandalized uh, the functioning of the government. But there's about 27 of them, and they've been able to cause chaos. Nancy Pelosi is going to be dealing with a progressive caucus of uh, 109 members. And the new member who comes out and you know starts screaming, I think she's been a congresswoman for about an hour and a half, or maybe it was the night before she became one, about how we'll impeach the mother effer. And then she goes on and says, well, Donald Trump has met his match. Uh, probably not. But, you know, it's nice to see that she's trying to compete in the vileness and scumbag category. And I thought Nancy Pelosi's response to that was great. She said, I have an objection generationally. I have. I don't like to censor right. people. But that's not the way I talk or I think we should talk. And so, so she's going to have her hands full, I think, managing the Democratic conference, but she's clearly the singular individual who has the ability to do it. She's never lost a vote. And in contrast to Paul Ryan, you know, I thought it was terrific to see with regard to the wall, a political leader in there who actually has the ability to exercise political power. And she offered him a compromise, said, I'll give you a dollar for your wall, <laughs> for your for your publicity stunt, which, by the way, we should never stop talking about the abuse of the United States military that took place in the waning days of Trump's shattering defeat in the midterm elections. When the active duty units of the 101st Airborne, 82nd Airborne, were sent to the border, soldiers who've missed countless graduations and birthdays and Christmases for Donald Trump's PR stunt. And by the way, I don't understand why the government is shut down. I don't understand why the American taxpayer is on the hook for this nonsense. 
I'm pretty sure I heard him say at least a million times during the campaign that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. And I just think about the old lady from the Wendy's commercials back in the Walter Mondale days. Where's the beef? I mean, where are the pesos? Well, and I I think uh, Joe Scarborough, our friend Joe this morning, summed it up perfectly when he talked about the previous shutdowns that were about something, about huge issues, about health care, about budget deficits and, and spending. And he called this one, which I think is incredibly apt, which is the Seinfeld shutdown. It's a shutdown about nothing. It's a created crisis. It absolutely is a created crisis. Donald Trump is a con man and a demagogue. He's not so different than a guy who works the retirement communities selling shady aluminum siding to the senior citizens. He went around this country conning a lot of people, saying we're going to have a wall, which is impractical. And by the way, there's zero net illegal immigration coming across the southern border. Illegal immigration in this country is largely from visa overstays of people who arrive on airplanes through airports. Steve, that's a good point. Let's wait. Let's let's play a clip for a second, because they unearthed this week a radio interview that acting chief of staff, which is a title I think you and I didn't know existed. The acting chief of staff, who in 2015 was a congressman from South Carolina, Mick Mulvaney, he commented on the policy implications of the campaign promise of a wall. Let's listen to the acting White House chief of staff for Donald Trump. Okay, moving on. Uh, Immigration. Donald Trump says build a wall, deport all illegal immigrants. Rules are rules. You either play and stay or you cheat and you get deported. What challenges does this plan pose? Um, A bunch. I've never been in the boxcar um, caucus, you know, ship them home in boxcars and let let the Lord sort them out. the fence is an easy thing to sell politically. Um, it's an easy thing for a someone who doesn't follow the issue very closely to say, oh, well, that'll just solve everything, build the fence. When you go out and you talk to the Texas ranchers, which I've done, Jeff Duncan has done, and ask them, these are the guys dealing with it every single day. Because we have a fence there, Yeah, right? we have a fence, and we're like... And they're building tunnels. And they're, that's exactly their point. The fence doesn't solve the problem. Is it? Is it... Is it necessary to have one? Sure. Would it help? Sure. But to just say build the darn fence and have that be the end of an immigration discussion is absurd and almost childish for someone running for president to take that simplistic of view. Um, and by the way, the bottom line is a fence doesn't stop anybody who really wants to get across. Um, you go under, you go around, you go through, and that's what the ranchers tell us is that they don't need a fence. What they need is more manpower and more technology and more willingness to enforce the law as it exists today. There are parts of our border that are secure and parts of our border that are not. Um, and a lot of that comes down to whether or not we're just willing to enforce the law as it exists. So that it, it, it's easy to tell people what they want to hear. Build the darn fence. Vote for me. Well, again, you see somebody whose opinion today is completely opposite. But it's not because there's been new facts introduced. It's that Nick Mulvaney's absolute cravenness has been exposed. And he's an avatar of the type of cravenness that has completely broken our politics in Washington, D.C. He knows how stupid this is. In fact, everybody in Washington is united, probably including Trump, about how stupid and impractical this is. This is a long border through vast desert, and it can be secured electronically. This idea of a wall has always been impractical. And the idea that we would paralyze the operations of government, right? So you have 800,000 furloughed employees who aren't getting 
a paycheck, how many dependents do they have? And how many businesses rely on their customers who include those people? How many bills are going unpaid to contractors or to other people that they do business with? This is an infliction of cruelty unnecessarily on hardworking government employees. I was in the airport yesterday, you know, and I fly 300,000 miles a year. So I, you know, I, I definitely have had my moments of annoyance on TSA lines, but you're looking at all the TSA agents there. You know, their job is to keep the plane safe. You have major airlines saying today that the shutdown is making the skies less safe. None of them are being paid. So you have people that are working, doing their jobs, serving the taxpayer, involved in public service, who are being screwed seven ways to Sunday by this stupidity. And it's just obscene to watch it play out. And you see this manifest itself in the stock market with the unbelievable volatility. It seems to me that 2019 is the year when the consequences of the Trump presidency come due. And and what I mean by that is this. It's entirely possible that somebody could go out and have too much to drink and they could drive home and make it home okay and not get caught. Could they do it two days in a row? A week in a row? Yeah. How about a month? A year? Yeah, it gets Two hard. years? Yeah. What about the third year? And so, like, I, I think that we're, we're on the edge of, of some bad stuff happening here. The consequences coming due with having someone who is unhinged, who is incompetent, uh, who seems compromised by foreign power when you look at uh, position after position after position, he's echoing the Kremlin's talking points from Syria across the Middle East with regard to Europe. So we're we're in a enormously consequential moment here as we begin 2019. And so, Steve, to your point, I don't know about you, but you and I both served in the White House for President George W. Bush, and we had an unusual stability in that White House. We had Andy Card. We had the cabinet secretary, some of whom served, you know, the full four and, and, and six years. Right now, as we sit here in the first week of 2019, the first week of the new congressional session, the positions of chief of staff, attorney general, secretary of defense, UN ambassador, EPA administrator, and secretary of the interior, six of the 24 cabinet level agencies and, and positions are all acting. Does that make you nervous? Of course it is. The government isn't functioning at all. We have an acting defense secretary. We have no chief of staff at the Department of Defense. I believe we have an illegally appointed acting attorney general who, despite him being illegally appointed, is also completely and profoundly unsuited for the job, completely incompetent. He was, he's a crackpot. This guy was involved in a scam not long ago with a company that was selling time travel technology. It's simply this cast of miscreants and characters. I've referred to it for a long time as the equivalent of the Star Wars cantina bar scene. But around the Oval Office, life and death decisions get made. And we see people that are completely unsuited for these positions, many of them unconfirmable, replacing people, many of whom are under various criminal investigations, like Zinke. It's an unbelievable thing. I mean, in our administration, we had um, 
none of that. The Obama administration had none of it. And I think that very quickly after, if we ever do get the government back up and running, I think all eyes are going to start turning to these investigations. You mentioned Zinke, but of course, obviously the one that's front and center is that of Bob Mueller. And I wanted to get your thoughts a little bit because I think that people don't really understand because, again, the Starr investigation was 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Unlike Starr, Bob Mueller and his team have not spoken, have not held a press conference, as near as you and I can tell, I think, have barely leaked. Do you think that's hurt the investigation politically since they've done that? Well, I think you can make an argument in the moment that if you are being attacked, that if you are being disparaged, if you are being delegitimized and the person doing it is the president of the United States and you don't respond to it, if you don't tell your story, you're disadvantaged. That being said, he is conducting, as he always has, investigations with the highest level of integrity and going where the facts lead him. And so the information that we do know has come about not through press conferences, but through the judicial process, through the legal process. He's letting the institutions, he's letting the rule of law speak for him. So we know that the president's personal attorney and longtime fixer has pled guilty, has implicated the president in criminal activity. We know that the president's former national security advisor, we know that the president's former chairperson, we know dozens of people from around the periphery of the campaign have been indicted with more to come. And so what we see, like an iceberg, is just the tip. The mass lies hidden below the waterline, but we will see more of it as the rule of law comes for this criminal regime and coming it is. You know, this is a Marine Corps officer wounded in combat, a man of the highest integrity, somebody who walked out of a million dollar lawyer job to go be a frontline murder prosecutor who spent every day of his long career doing what's right, much of it in public service, the complete opposite of Trump when it comes to honesty, when it comes to integrity, when it comes to decency, when it comes to love of country and service. And so this investigation will continue as it has been to be a dominant feature of this Trump presidency through 19. And if we think about it from day one to today, and we look at all of the things that Trump and his minions once said versus the reality that we now know, one thing has always been true. Every single person, 100% of the time, around Trump, around the campaign, around the White House, who has ever been asked a question about anything having to do with Russians, having to do with the question of a hostile powers interference in our election, contacts between Russians, including intelligence agents in the campaign, every single one of them, every single time has lied 100% of the time. And Steve, I think that's a great point. One of the things I've been thinking about over the break was there's this mindset that is set in, which we call conventional wisdom, which you and I both know is always conventional, but not often wise, where people think, okay, fine. Uh, now we have a house who could impeach, but there's no way that you'll get Repub enough Republicans in the Senate for conviction and removal. Is it a mistake to view the politics of this situation as static, in your opinion, as somebody who, who knows political trends pretty well? 
At the end of the day, practicality matters in politics, as does duty and as does the constitutional oaths every member of Congress has taken. And so from a political level, there is certainly an argument to be made that Donald Trump has breached a long time ago the high crimes and misdemeanors bar that would lead to impeachment. That being said, there's no practical approach to achieving the president's removal from office. And therefore, it would be a hollow gesture and a political gesture that in the end would just fuel the grievance which fuels Trumpism and further divide the country. In order to move forward with an impeachment, it seems to me, we'll have to wait until the results of the Mueller investigation are in and everything is known. And at that point, it could well be the case that the decision that Republican senators are going to have to make is this one. Are we going to have a criminal president, a tax cheat and fraud, somebody who broke felony campaign finance laws, somebody who appears to be compromised by a foreign power, somebody who obstructed justice, somebody who covered up crimes, somebody who made Richard Nixon look like a kid who lifted a nickel out of the lemonade jar, are we going to remove him from office? And that's going to be a serious decision. And so every day in this country, random Americans get letters in the mail. They're told that they have to report to jury duty. They go in there. They're instructed by a judge. They swear an oath. And the system works. When all of the evidence is in, we should expect no less of a United States senator, including the Republican ones, than we do of Joe Smith off the street who we drag into the courthouse to do his jury duty, to do his duty. And the president of the United States, should we arrive at this moment in this country, is not a king. He is not an emperor. He is not a dictator. He is the head of the Article II branch of government. He is the commander in chief. He is the leader of a co-equal branch of government. And he is not above the law. And Steve, to your point about waiting for the evidence, I thought it was really interesting in the interviews with the jurors after the Manafort trial. You had four solid Trump supporters on that jury. He was convicted on eight out of 18 counts. Three of those jurors convicted him on the other 10 counts as well. There was only one lone holdout that saved Paul Manafort from being convicted on all 18 counts. And I think, um, as you said, the best we can hope for and we have to hold them accountable for is for the Republicans to weigh that evidence in the same way that a juror would. Steve, I don't know about you, but one of my resolutions this year is to get to all of those books that you and I have been talking about. And Audible is going to help me do that. Absolutely, Adam. I'll be doing the same thing. In my car, I'll be listening to an Audible title. On the train, headphones on, Audible book. Well, as you know, I spent half my life on airplanes, and an Audible book is the perfect travel companion. If you're a multitasker like me, Steve, and Elise, Audible is the perfect answer. Listen during your workout, running errands, or even while cooking and cleaning. Audible, because words matter. Audible, because words matter. 
Let's turn now, Steve, to 2020. As you and I know, it, it started about three days after the um, midterm elections, and we had our first announcement New Year's Eve of Elizabeth Warren, uh, and then she spent last weekend in Iowa. Is there, a, is there a benefit, a tactical benefit to being first in this case? I think the first mover is a demonstration of weakness right now. I think there's a couple of things you're seeing in the Democratic primary. First is Let's look at the currents. You have a left current. You have a ideological current that's pulling the party to the left. You have uh, Casio-Cortez talking about, for example, a Green New Deal with top marginal tax rates restored to the levels they were in the 60s at 65, 70%. But I will give her significant credit because she is the first political leader in a very, very, very long time to honestly talk about what would be required to meet the level of spending that she is calling for, though I completely disagree with it and the approach and think it's kind of crazy. I give her credit for her honesty. But that but you see the leftward pull of the Democratic Party. You also see a current for new and a current for young. And so you see a couple of things. Beto O'Rourke is clearly thinking about this, and he's a figure that is scaring a lot of these competitors to death because they think he can go to Iowa and he can draw a crowd of 10,000, 15,000 people, and he will climb like a Saturn rocket straight up and to the right. And you see a lot of the Obama alumni gravitating in that direction. He has charisma. So he is being attacked online, which is the first battleground of the primaries where you see a lot of depositioning going on. You have this brilliant article that describes this by Jonathan Chait, the attacks on Beto by Bernie Sanders, trying to deposition him, trying to push him out ideologically from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, and as a result, because Beto was in a position to wait, and decide when he goes to Iowa for the first time. That draws others off the line. So is there space in the race for both Elizabeth Warren and Kristen Gillibrand? Or does just one of them move out past the wild card round? And so Elizabeth Warren moving out early, I think is a sign of worry both about Kamala Harris. I think it's a sign of worry about Beto O'Rourke. And I think she's trying to establish herself as the bona fide progressive fighter, populist in the in the race, but I think the early movers uh, are being drawn off the line by other people's gravity, and so what you want to be able to do in this is to control time. There's two things you manage in a campaign: one is time, one is money, and when you lose control of time, when you lose control of where you have to go, when you have to do it. That's not an advantageous position. You work really hard in a campaign to establish your ability to have sovereignty in those areas. So when I look at her right now, I look at the beginning of her campaign was really the release of the DNA test, which was a debacle. I look at the beer drinking in the kitchen, which is ludicrously inauthentic. It reminds me like when my parents got hold of Facebook for the first time and you're just like, good God, right? And I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just not... You know, like she should she should just stop. Right? Yes, you know, it's exactly. Like, it's like if, if you know, Beto and Ocasio-Cortez and some of these younger members know how to use it. 
but it's going to be a big field and we'll see a big moment coming up with the with the decision of Vice President Biden to, you know, to get into the race or not. Do you think he's the guy to beat, Steve? Look, I look at the race and I think if you've been the incumbent vice president of the country for eight years, that you are a genuinely beloved figure in the country. Like people really like Joe Biden. And you're at 30 percent leading the pack, but that number is too low at the at the beginning. And I think that after really a career of service, right, where we've seen this man's extraordinary character uh, on the national stage through ups and downs and tragedy and political mistakes through since 1972, I'm 48 years old, you know, since I was two years old. I hope what he'll decide to do is to be the most popular political leader in America and, and not get back into all of this. You know, Ronald Reagan was the oldest man to ever run for office in 1980. People are living longer and, and healthily. He was 69. Biden is 78. Um, I can certainly understand that he looks at the mess of this administration, the danger. You know, maybe before we can write the next chapter of history, he's thinking that we have to stabilize this. We have to get hold of this emergency. We're in the we're in the middle of a forest fire, so to speak. And it'll be interesting to see the argument that he will make run up against both the progressive current and the new current in the in the Democratic Party. But certainly he's tough enough. He would handle Trump well. And I do think that timing is a underappreciated virtue in campaigns. And when you miss your time, you miss your time. And I, I really believe had Joe Biden been a candidate in 2016, he was likely, in my view, he would have been the nominee. And 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 yeah. he would have beaten Donald Trump. It, it would not have been the case if Biden was was the nominee that he would have lost Michigan, Ohio and Pennsylvania by 70. Well, I'll tell you right now, I, I can promise you this. Joe Biden wouldn't have spent between July one and Election Day more time in Martha's Vineyard in the Hamptons than he spent in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ohio combined. I can, I, I think we both agree on that one. I think you're absolutely right. Well, Steve, it's going to be a long campaign to be continued. Thanks, thanks for being with us this morning, Steve. Great to be with you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.